National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Culture is key in forming hearts and minds, and Catholics well-formed in both their profession and their faith certainly can impact culture for the good. We can all agree we need more of that today. One writer who is always keen on highlighting the intersection of faith and culture is the National Catholic Register's UK correspondent, K.V. Turley, and he has just released his first novel. He joins us here on Register Radio. And then we talk with Joan Desmond about the so-called woke revolution taking place even in some Catholic schools and, of course, in modern medicine and, again, in culture. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen. Matthew, I've missed you. <laughs> missed you, too. I've been uh, traveling quite a bit, as you know, but it's a, it's a delight to be back. Excellent, excellent. I wish we both had the, the pleasure of seeing our colleague in the UK, uh, K.V. Turley, in person right now. But alas, uh, Kevin is in Great Britain. Uh, he is a host at uh, EWTN Great Britain. And of course, our readers and our, our listeners here know him from his work at ncregister.com. And in the print edition, he's been writing on things of culture uh, for the register for a, quite a few years now. Uh, but he's been a busy man as of late, especially, I think, in this in this last year. He's written a novel, and he has created a new program uh, for EWTN called Turley Talks. Uh, this is it, it, very exciting to me because I've always loved exploring the topics of culture and uh, faith journeys with Kevin. That's the kind of thing he is always bringing to the register team. Uh, and so I'm very grateful to get into this uh, conversation with him now uh, from England. Welcome, KV. It's great to be with you, Jeanette and Matthew. So I haven't mentioned the name of your novel yet. Uh, it is called This Thing of Darkness. And it is rather unique. It's something I, I didn't expect, uh, but it is a fictionalization of the life of Bella Lugosi. And this, of course, is the iconic horror performer who is best known as Count Dracula. Uh, KV, not, not what many people might have expected <laughs> um, from a Catholic writer, but what inspired you to write this about this story, to write a novel about Bella Lugosi? Um. Well, the first thing to say, uh, Jeanette, is that it's co-written. As you probably know, the novel is co-written, so I, I can't take all the credit for it or all the blame for it either. Um, <laughs> the I, I think, um, I mean, I can give you the long story, the version or the very short version, but I mean, I think I, I went back and checked. It was July 1977. I went and looked this up when the BBC used to run late night horror double bills of 1930s universal horror movies and my father allowed me as a young child at the time allowed me to sit up and watch the first one which just happened okay. to be Dracula with Bella Lugosi and as a young child I was watching this kind of this Transylvania and vampires and and got totally sort of absorbed into it you know and um, I mean today people might be very concerned that uh, you know ca Catholics would be watching this type of thing but you got to remember that in the 70s and 80s uh, and in the 60s as well, horror movies were the only movies, the sort of traditional horror movies, were the only ones where the cross triumphed, hmm. right? It was the end where evil was vanquished and uh, 
Uh, everything was put back into the, the, the sort of the order it should be. It was, there was a Spanish bishop once said that he loved the British horror movies, the Hammer horror movies of the 1960s, because the cross always triumphed. And I kind of knew what he meant, that in an era when cinema was very uh, secular and very atheistic, there were these films dealing with the supernatural. It was the best we had. So this kind of sparked a long interest in this sort of genre. I'm, I'm not interested in horror movies that are just exploitative or bloody or anything like that. That's not really. But the, the sort of good and evil clash I kind of liked. And um, then I was working. Yeah. And then just to cut a long story short, I was working in the film industry 10 years ago and I was having a chat with the producer and he said, you know, the life of Bella Lugosi would make a great film. And I said, really? And the next day he brought me in a sort of biography and I started reading it and I thought, yeah, this is great stuff, you know, but it was also very sad. I thought, you know, his life was a sort of parable. And I guess, uh, as you know, uh, the best of that genre, Frankenstein novels, etc. you know, they, they're not really about horror. They're about uh, existential questions. And, um, what what I'm trying to do, what we were trying to do in the novel, what I'm very interested in and in, in the post that I've just uh, published with the registers, how Laguzzi's <clears throat> life is a sort of parable where fame and fortune wrapped up in a kind of a cult, you know, it doesn't really satisfy. And, it, and, and in Laguzzi's case, it was um, a rather more sad. It was sort of riches to rags story. So I, I'm interested in people, as you know, from some of the stuff I've written for the Register, and I'm interested in, in, in something that's beyond what we see around us. You know, we as Catholics, we as Christians, we understand the world as full of supernatural infused activity of various sorts. And, uh, you know, that the darkness is there, of course, but so is the light. And But at least we need to start to engage with that and see how that shapes our culture, shapes our world around us. Uh, I just, I have no time for the alternative, which is a, a rather bland, um, reductive view of humanity and the world, which is not as glorious or, or as dangerous as perhaps it could be. Absolutely. And I'll, I will tell our listeners what that story is that you recently wrote at the Register that we published this week, uh, Count Dracula and the Holy Cross. And of course, we ran this on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, uh, September 14th. Uh, again, it kind of gives us a glimpse of what uh, your novel is about. However, your novel is, uh, is, is fiction. Uh, so can you yes. describe a little bit of what um, the, that subject matter is, um, how you... Uh, fictionalize it yeah i think i think it's very important <clears throat> for, for obvious reasons to say this is not a biography of bella lugosi right uh, and it's not a memoir and it's not it's not a not a film history it's nothing like that um bella lugosi is a character within a plot and uh without wishing to give too too much away maybe he isn't a character in the plot i'll leave that <laughs> to, to, to work out um but but uh, his life, uh, I mean, he, he for me is one of the most colorful, perhaps the preeminent uh, actor of that genre at that time. And what happens is in, the in 1956 Hollywood, uh, a British widow, war widow, is uh, a freelance journalist uh, at the mercy of her editors, a feeling which many of us know. And uh, <laughs> she... Um, She's assigned this uh, star profile on somebody who's no longer a star, and she knows nothing about horror movie, movies or Bela Lugosi. She's not interested in it. 
but she she goes and and then the plot sort of thickens and twists and turns and her own past comes somehow into play and and then there's twists and turns i mean as i say it's very difficult for me to talk too much about it because i don't i don't want to give too much away right. but it, it but it, it's 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 a novel which um I'm grateful for people that have read it and really enjoyed it and said that they can't put it down. But it's also, I hope, um, a novel of ideas. And they're very Catholic ideas. And they're ideas about choices we make, which have consequences. And also about the communion of saints and how we're, we're all linked. We're all linked. I mean, let's not forget, Bella Lugosi was a Catholic. Uh, so we're all linked and we all have to bring each other to heaven. As Thomas More said, we, do, we don't, go, don't go to heaven on our own. Uh, but sometimes we go to hell on our own. And mm. um, it can be with our own mixed up ideas of what's important in life. And, um, you know, the, the, the devil and his cohorts will show us fame and riches and all sorts of things that we think are going to satisfy, but they never really do. And so the novel's the novel's looking at Hollywood. It's looking beyond the veneer of Hollywood. But Hollywood is really a, a cipher for the world uh, and how the world dreams and 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 what what our ambitions and desires are. Yeah, Kevin. I hope, I hope, I, I hope that hasn't confused. I mean, it confused me actually as I was saying it. But sorry. <laughs> well, Kevin, I, I'm tempted to ask you about Plan Nine from Outer Space, uh, the, the famous Lugosi picture that was judged the the world's. Yes history's worst movie ever made but let's go to something more edifying and that is um, the question of Catholic novels and the importance of Mm. the role of Catholic novels in shaping culture I mean so many people consider The Lord of the Rings to be a Catholic novel what's Mm -hmm. your understanding of it and would this particular work constitute that I think it's a really good question, um, Matthew, and one that a lot of people have pondered and a lot of Catholic writers, you know, the famous Graham Greene quote, I'm a a Catholic who writes as opposed to a Catholic writer. I don't think there's a definitive in this, Um, but I think I like, um, was it Oscar Wilde? Uh, It sounds like something you would have said where there's not, there's not immoral novels and and moral novels, there's bad novels and good novels. And uh, there's something I think, which it's not about Catholic novels. You see, uh, in my defense, um, somebody once said to me, Kevin, you write about everything except God. And I would and I would reply in the same way G.K. Chesterton would reply to that, which was everything I write is about God because God is in everything. Yeah, and, uh, and I think Catholic novels, we, what, 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 I'm, what I would love is that there are, Catholic, there are many, many Catholic novelists writing in all genres bringing our understanding of what it is to be a human being into the literary world. Absolutely. Well said, Kevin, and I I agree. I think that's what I was talking about in my lead-in here. We want to be good at our professions, and we want to be formed in our faith. And and in doing so, we bring our faith into our professions, and that's what you've done here. Uh, I know uh, that this kind of genre attracts um, audiences, and even audiences at ncregister.com, because people are always attracted to this kind of horror, horror genre. I mean, if we write about the devil, if we write about hell, if we 
write about any anything kind of dark, it gets it gets attention. Yeah. And so I know that this will too. And yet it has the potential of bringing them to the good. And that's why you write. I mean, that's why you've done this. We are almost out of time in this segment. And we'll, we'll have to pick this conversation up because you know how much I love to talk about culture with you. But I did want to tease a little bit um, your Turley Talks, which is the program that you have produced and that you uh, are in. And one of your first um, guests or conversations that you had was with your co-author, who you didn't mention her name, Fiorella De Maria. Uh, she has co-authored this novel with you, but she's also one of the people you highlight in a in a Turley talk called uh, "The Mystery of a Catholic Author." Author, excuse me, "The Mystery of a Catholic Author." What are Turley talks? Uh, Turley talks are basically me on location throughout Great Britain, interviewing um, Catholics who are involved in the arts archbishops, uh, people who are involved in academia, people who are involved in all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Uh, they're Catholics with an opinion, Catholics who are trying to change the world, trying, Catholics who are trying to make a difference. And that's what I'm interested in. And I'm hoping that in showcasing this, there'll be other Catholics who say, do you know what? They do it. Why don't I do what mm. I love? Why don't I become what I want to become? Uh, so all I do is try to get out of the way and let these people tell their stories and showcase it as entertainingly as possible. Uh, and I, I have to say that we have a great production team here in Britain, uh, Norman and Amy working with me on this. And we're, we're just trying to showcase Catholics in, in this part of the world, but for but not forgetting that we are Catholic, i.e. we're universal. So hopefully the message resonates across the world. Uh, and I think it's what EWTN should be doing. It should be just celebrating what it is to be a Catholic. You know, it's good news. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I perfectly agree with you. And I hope that people will tune in to ncregister.com for your writings. They can always find KV Turley if you just simply search in our search bar. And then at EWTN, you can watch uh, KV Turley Talks uh, every Saturday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. And of course, I hope that our listeners will stay tuned when we come back after this short break and Matthew and I will talk to Joan Desmond about the woke revolution or we should say so-called woke revolution that seems to be pervading our culture today. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. Archbishop Cordelioni talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the Register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the Register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. 
Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register, and I have Joan Frawley-Desmond here to talk about something you've probably been hearing a lot of if you follow Catholic media, and that's this wokeism that seems to have taken over our culture these days. Uh, before we turn to that, though, I want to invite you who are our listeners of Register Radio uh, to answer a survey uh, that would give us a better sense of who you are and what is important to you. So please visit www.ewtnnews.com forward slash survey to participate in this survey that gives us a better sense of who you are. I greatly appreciate it, and I appreciate the time it'll take you uh, to do that. So Joan Frawley-Desmond has been writing uh, a very important story about a high school out in California. And this high school has kind of been embroiled in a, in a discussion over critical race theory, a discussion over racism, and really a discussion over Catholic identity. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be something that's resolved uh, very easily. Not, not at this Jesuit high school, um, but also it's not something that's resolved very easily uh, in our culture right now in the United States and, and in Canada and Western Europe. And and so, uh, Joan, it's great to have you on to talk about this very important story that you wrote, but also I think it's, it's wider implications. And so the story is uh, titled Jesuit, excuse me, the story is titled... Jesuit High School in California Accused of Teaching Critical Race Theory. And as I understand it, Joan, the, the, there were black students, African-American students at the school who alleged racist behavior and language at the school in an, in an open letter to all the students. And the school's response to that letter uh, seemed to cause a pretty deep clash in the community. Uh, what has happened Jeanette, what I learned is that this Catholic Jesuit-run school, boys' school in Sacramento, the capital of California, is dealing with something that every school is dealing with in mm -hmm. some ways. And you have a group of black students who, in the wake of the national reckoning on race um, after George Floyd died in police custody, wanted to explore these issues my sense, though, it's not spelled out in a letter that they provided to the school community, an open letter expressing their concerns, and also, I think, their sense of alienation in the wake of George Floyd's death. And they don't say exactly why, but they say that they felt racist incidents, that they experienced racist slurs. And you also get a feeling that maybe they were having a very deep experience mm -hmm. in, the, in the wake of Floyd's death, and that that wasn't reflected elsewhere. And it, it kind of shocked them. It made me think for a minute about Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, who, when he was a seminarian um, at a Catholic seminary, and, and Martin Luther King had died, he got reactions that really shocked him. Mm -hmm. He was in a different place and very legitimately wanted, wanted some affirmation of what that experience is. So I think you have a disconnect there, which I can imagine how they may feel. Then the, the school administration affirmed their concerns and said they would look into it. The, the open letter uh, by the black students included 
um, not only what would seem like something any school would do, concern for them, safe spaces if they need, need it because of bullying or, or any kind of other confrontation with racism. Um, they also, though, wanted changes in the school curriculum. And this is where, you know, the rubber hits the road in many contentious school board meetings across the country. What does race mean for your curriculum? How might it change math, as, as has been debated in California? And then the students um, go through all the curriculum, English, how they want English to be handled, more stories about experiences like theirs. Um, and then in theology, they also wanted a more critical look at some elements, um, which not all of this is well expressed, but it has to do you know, with gender issues and uh, homophobia. Uh, so there's kind of a grab bag. Some of mm -hmm. it is very coherent, some isn't. That then worried a group of parents who define themselves as a concerned group of parents, alumni, and uh, donors. And they then started to push back, wondering if this was all just going to happen overnight. And of course, with the nation's, you know, national stories and media talking about similar confrontations and even done deals for some curriculum changes, they may have felt they had to get ahead of this. Right. Uh, so all, not all of this actually happened. Some of it, from what I can tell, were things that they worried would happen. Sure. Um, but they started to scrutinize things. They went and met with the administration um, and they started organizing. They built a website. Right. And so ultimately what is happening here, obviously it's, it's, two different responses. It's, it's the response to these students who, who felt um, uh, there was racism and the school responding uh, to them and trying to, to help them to feel more incorporated and, and to, to uh, adjust uh, a, a school environment that, that would maybe be more accepting to them. But then you have, on the other hand, some who feel that it was mishandled or perhaps too much would change. And really at the core of some of these parents' concerns, it seems to me is Catholic identity. They seemed worried that uh, there would be um, sort of a reinvention, <laughs> if you will, of the Catholic, Catholic identity of, of the school. Uh, did they voice those c concerns um, over Catholic identity um, for you? Yes, they did. And I think if you, if you kind of get to the nub of it, I think they're saying, we don't deny there is racism. We don't mm -hmm. deny that some people may feel left out, isolated, bullied uh, because of their race or anything else. What they're concerned about is that the solutions are not based on the faith and are secular, even politicized solutions. Mm -hmm. So that is their concern. Do we want, I, I thought one comment by the alum was, uh, was interesting. He was saying that he felt when he had been at the school, a real sense of comfort that he knew how to navigate the world um, and, and that he would make the right calls because of the very strong Catholic faith he had received. And he's wondering now if the students will get that same substantive Catholic social teaching, Catholic moral teaching, so that they make the right call and it's not just a politicized response. So I think in many ways that reflects the issues. And I think stepping back, Jeanette, the story also reflects a broader discussion going on in a lot of schools. You have a lot of parental anxiety about changes going on in society. You have um, parental anxiety 
and support or opposition for changes going on in the church. People are looking, some groups are looking for stability, some groups are looking for reform. And so you have misunderstandings as well as real decisions that have to be made. One thing I'd like to point out is that just as a lot of the debate in, in public schools over critical race theory, which as we know can is sort of a catch-all, it can mean many different things, but it has also come with a promotion of like gender, uh, gender identity issues, mm -hmm. uh, uh, changes in pronouns and, and that sort of thing. And the same thing happened at Jesuit high school. So to me, it's kind of fascinating that an issue that was really focused on race has also um, incorporated gender identity issues. And that honestly, I would say is as much of a concern as anything on the race, uh, on the racial uh, aspects of, of a change in school culture. And I guess overall, their hope is that the bonds between students don't get fractured in the process of trying to promote and encourage more racial equality and sensitivity, helping people understand that some of their classmates may be, may be having very different experiences from what they have. Right. You know, Joan, in all of this, you mentioned the, the parental anxiety. I think there is a lot of anxiety in society over this polarization that we experience. I mean, you're, everything is, is characterized as being on one side or the other of an issue and as if it were that neat, you know, as if, as if you could really um, not have this middle ground or, or not have discussion and dialogue. You, you have to make a choice on one of these very, very uh, opposite poles. And you have written recently about an author uh, and professor, uh, Charles Camosi, uh, who's a Fordham professor and a bioethicist. He's a, he was a longtime pro-life Democrat, and he quit that party. Um, and you've written about him uh, because he doesn't fit those neat characterizations on either side. Uh, yet he's, he's writing about issues that are very important and, and really trying to get to the truth of the matter and to present them in ways uh, that the culture can understand. This is Charles Camosi, and he's written a new book, Losing Our Dignity. Uh, what have you found in his work that is just worth mentioning to our listeners right now? Let me mention the subhead first. The subhead is how secularized medicine is undermining human equality. So I really like the fact that he's ex exploring this from a whole nother vantage point as opposed to a political one. Um, he's saying, what did the church teach about the inalienable dignity of the human person? He's talking about how when Jesus, you know, when the incarnation arrived in the world, Many people, many pagan cultures that practice infanticide or euthanasia, suicide, all of that changed because of the Christian teaching about the inalienable dignity of the person. What Camosi does is he employs some terms that I think are helpful if you want to try to find some kind of common ground. So he uses words like equality of all. Um, and so some in the pro-life community have used equality, equality of the unborn. But equality is also a term that I think many people in the secular sphere are comfortable with, or people that may not be as embedded in the pro-life community mm -hmm. um, use. So I think that's the first step, is he finds a term that people can kind of buy into. And then he tries to look at how we have moved away from 
that respect, even though it may not always have been practiced, right? We know in the past there have been violations of human dignity against lots of different groups, whether, you know, children with Down syndrome, whether black patients. So it's not that everything was great, but there were general precepts, general principles that applied. And he's now saying the the community, the medical community is actually consciously repudiating these and adopting something else. So in that context, he's asking us to look at, are the rights of these other groups and who might these groups be? They could be people late in life with dementia. They could be children with neurodegenerative disorders. And of course, they can be the unborn. Um, he brings up stories about Terry Schiavo, uh, the young woman who had uh, brain damage and her kind of the effort to turn off her feeding tube and let her basically die of dehydration and starvation was a seven-year battle. He talks about that in detail. And right. finally, you know, so let, those are the main points I think are worth making. What I really like about um, Kamosi is he applies that um, reason, you know, in that history, also with these personal kind of stories. And he, re he really brings it to life. And I think we need that today to navigate this, this culture um, revolution that seems to be happening. And you can read a work by Kamosi, Charles Kamosi at ncregister.com. It's called Abortion Has Paved the Way for Rejecting the fundamental equality of those with profound disabilities, and he wrote that column specifically for us. Uh, Joan, you know, I, I really did appreciate your, as I've mentioned throughout this, um, your writing uh, and focusing on Kamosi's work because he is such a thoughtful person. He doesn't fit all of these um, all of this sort of polarized uh, ideologies out there. He just thinks about it. He talks about it in realistic ways, and he points out the truth in both scientific, you know, matters, historical matters, and faith. I mean, he's a, he's a deep Catholic, and we need that as we address um, everything that is happening today in this kind of woke revolution, where there seems to be only one way. Um, in our, that our culture accepts, you know, and, and when I say that it's, it's maybe a little bit unfair is there's one way that mainstream media seems to, um, accept things, you know, one ideological ideology that they seem to accept. It's not, it, it's not obviously with every community member, or the people we, you know, relate with day in and day out. There are definitely those who are standing their ground, but you see this a lot right now, um, down in Texas, you know, um, there's just a, a huge cultural uh, war at play in Texas because of their pro-life law. It's, it's basically a, a restriction to abortion uh, after six uh, weeks. And, um, and that's, it's a revolutionary kind of, of uh, law uh, because of how uh, it is enforced. Um, and really everything's firing at this. <laughs> everything's firing at Texas. I mean, you have the Department of Justice. They have sued Texas over this law, um, but you also have businesses who have weighed in. What have you seen? It's a fascinating topic. And let me just say, this has gone right back to Washington, D.C., where Justice Kavanaugh's home had protesters uh, leading U.S. senators to attack the decision 
which they viewed as an effort by activists to intimidate the justice. So this is not limited to Texas, is what I'm saying. Right, right. It's gone. I mean, it's related to Texas, but it's gone everywhere. You're absolutely right. You're right. Yeah. So and and so there was pushback, which I was happy to see. But getting to your question, um, I I was reading a recent L.A. Times story that really summed it up. This is a so-called business columnist, but he's chewing out Texas-based corporations like Dell Computer and American Airlines for failing to challenge the abortion law. And it's as if they are somehow elected lawmakers. I mean, it's fascinating. He's essentially saying they should be playing this role. He said, the opt- quote, the optimistic notion that corporate America would step in to uphold the public interest in the face of politicians' actions um, or inaction died September 1, because mm-hmm. it's a, the law passed without corporations pushing back. So what are some examples what he did apply? All right. We have the Austin-based dating app Bumble, which said via Instagram that it has, quote, created a relief fund for women and people across the gender spectrum who seek abortions in Texas. Lyft, the ride-sharing uh, company, said it had, quote, created a driver's legal defense fund to cover 100% legal fees for drivers sued under the law. Well, that may be a trickier one. Um then there also, let's not forget, there was a list going back to 2019 with 180 U.S. companies signed an open letter drafted by Planned Parenthood and other civil rights organizations expressing support for, quote, reproductive health, including access to safe and legal abortion. What's interesting here, though, is at the end of the day, very few companies actually did push back, mm-hmm. under, un, unlike Georgia, which had a lot more political activity and what some would call woke um, woke capitalism in, in full gear. But I would just say, Jeanette, the effort is being made very strongly to say the debate over abortion is over. One side has won and the woke side has won and the other side should be delegitimized and just, you know, we should turn our backs on them. They have no rights. That's really the message as I see it. And Media, you know, mainstream media, the New York Times and many others are attempting to, uh, to you know, pass this message. Right. Uh, so we'll see where it comes. But that's what I would say is happening. Yeah, media and big business and oftentimes big tech. And that's um, important for us to realize. But the but the battle is not over. And uh, Loretta Brown has written a story just this week at, at NC Register about uh, where the Supreme Court may end up going on the Dobbs uh, case. This is the Mississippi case before the courts uh, and how, uh, you know, they, they reacted, the court reacted in the Texas law, which they didn't law, they didn't react to the merits, but they are, are letting it play its course um, at, at least at this point. So there's a lot to be seen. The battle is not over. In fact, it might be at an important pinnacle uh, and that's why culture, uh, this woke culture is pushing back. Uh, so, Joan, as always, I'm, I'm always grateful for your conversation um, and, and the reporting that you do to, to bring this to us at ncregister.com. Thanks, Jeanette. It's a pleasure. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, God bless you. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. 
podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on EWTN.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.